This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible for free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. Dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, play subatomic games in space under green starlight. But first up, here's the news. Use your immune system to fight cancer. An off-the-shelf drug for treating leukaemia found by a collaboration between the University College London the Babraham College at Cambridge, and other institutions to stop solid and blood cancers from suppressing the immune system, allowing people to make antibodies to not only fight off the cancer successfully, but immunise them against any return of cancer. Regulatory T-cells are a part of the immune system that suppress the immune responses of other cells, so that the immune system shuts down after killing your infection. Continued activation of your immune system when there's no longer an infection would make you feel ill and your immune system would ultimately start attacking your own cells, causing autoimmune diseases. Leukaemia is a blood cancer that was known to express the P110 delta protein that tells the regulatory T cells to shut down the immune system's attacks. So a P110 delta inhibitor drug has been used successfully against leukaemia. Leukaemia makes leukocytes, the white blood cells, turn cancerous. The researchers have found that many different types of cancers from breast, lung, pancreatic to skin cancers all respond strongly to the treatment. It's worked on every type of cancer they've tried so far. The delta inhibitor drug inhibits P110 delta from suppressing the immune system, which allows the immune system to form antibodies to successfully fight off the cancer and leave the body protected against that type of cancer coming back. If the tumours are small, the delta inhibitor pill may be able to allow the immune system to cure the cancer on its own. For larger tumours, surgery or other treatments may be needed first. The treatment is especially effective after surgery to remove tumours, allowing the immune system to mop up the last of the tumour cells. The initial study was in mice, but the drugs are already being used in human clinical trials, so they're expected to be available in just a few years. The paper was published in the journal Nature with the title Inactivation of PI3K P110 Delta Breaks Regulatory T-Cell Mediated Immune Tolerance to Cancer. 3dprint.com reports that Dutch artist Daniel de Braun has designed and built an analogue 3D printer that works without computers or electricity. It's a cog and chain machine that could have been used in the alternative 18th century history of steampunk. 
the user needs to lift a 15 kilogram weight to start the printer moving. The weight has to be lifted again every 10 minutes to continue powering the machine. Some print jobs require the weight to be lifted eight times. The machine has air resisting wings, which can be twisted to adjust the speed of the printer. To control what the mechanical printer makes, the brown uses differently shaped aluminium wire. The shape of the wire pushes the printing platform to one side or another, while the printhead stays still. The machine threads down the shape of the wire to make the object encoded in the bends in the wire. This analog printer can create objects more quickly than computer-driven 3D printers because it's extruding at five times lower resolution, at two millimeters instead of 0.4 millimeters. The printer extrudes clay, pasta, wall filler, starch-based plastics, and anything else that can fit through the nozzle and doesn't need heating. Although the materials to make the printer only cost him 150 euros, De Browner has spent nine months designing and making the printer. De Browner is planning on selling artworks he's made with the printer, instead of selling the printer itself because it's so time-intensive to make. He hopes to build mechanical 3D printers with more options after he graduates in design and art. Daniel De Brown is a product designer at the Art Academy in Utrecht in the Netherlands. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Paul Steyer is the producer and co-founder of See Through Studios, a video game studio in Sydney making a game called Particulars. Particulars is a game based on subatomic particle physics, which is aiming to bring subatomic particle physics into people's homes and letting them understand it. I began by asking him how Particulars draws players into the subatomic world. So the first thing they'll see on the screen is actually a short animatic about our main character who essentially finds a machine that brings her into the particle world. And then you essentially see yourself as a down quark, which is one of the subatomic particles, and you are taught how to move around the world and you have how to interact with other particles or how you will interact with other particles. <laughs> and how close is it to the standard model in physics? How accurate is the physics? Uh, so accuracy only goes so far when you're dealing with the game. <laughs> so there's... A few good examples. Firstly, we get rid of anything quantum because in terms of a game, dealing with probabilities and all that sort of stuff is just too much. Even with like later on, we add in the weak force. So dealing with decay rates that are half-lives rather than straight times is actually kind of complicated and hard for a player to understand. So we just get rid of all. Anything with uncertainty goes away. There's another really good example of where we've had to change the things a bit is essentially that our top quark, for instance, is, I don't know, probably three, four orders of magnitude bigger than a down and up quark. And we just can't fit that on the screen. So we make it significantly bigger and you can tell that it's much bigger and it has a big effect that it's bigger, but we kind of use a bit of a log scale for some of the bigger particles making sure we preserve like the v- relatively which one's bigger than which but not necessarily getting the exact sizes right so it's sort of a, a gentle 
introduction rather than throwing people in the deep end? Oh, definitely. I mean, we only deal with, we actually add the forces one at a time, which is why when you start the game, you actually can have quarks on their own. And as you go, that becomes more and more difficult as you add the strong force and that sort of thing. But we only deal with, there's 10 chapters all up and the first four chapters are only dealing with the electromagnetic force and just slowly introducing new particles and new gameplay mechanics that let us like show more sides of the different forces. And then after that, we start bringing the others. So in terms of gameplay, what sort of controllers are you using? Uh, so you can either use a keyboard or uh, like an Xbox controller type thing. So it's the joystick or the arrow keys or WSAD for game games people. Um, and there, it's basically you move around the map using that. And rather than having direct control of your movements, you actually impart a force on your particle. And the important thing is that every other particle on the screen imparts a force on your particle as well and you impart a force on every other particle and every particle imparts a force on every other particle based on the rules of which forces are on at the time which platforms is the game available on so the game's on steam as early access right now so we're still in development so that opening animatic if you get the game right now you'll notice is a storyboard of that animatic without any music um but it's on Steam for PC, Mac, and Linux. We're looking at other platforms, but that's what we know for sure. And you've got 10 chapters, but there's only four forces. So how do things progress? So, for instance, the first chapter is very much just introducing basic movement, how to work in this world, antiparticles, how to deal with them, how not to get annihilated, that sort of thing. In the second chapter, we then really introduce and play with the idea of neutrality. So if you get... a uh, up quark and two down quarks together, they don't, um, they don't really affect other particles because they're neutrally charged. So we actually, in the second chapter, we deal with that. And so we, while we don't necessarily um, have a new force every chapter, we do have a new concept and we definitely add new things as we go. Um, yeah, and each chapter very much has a different feel to the last often. And what inspired you? How did you get to be creating particulars? So there's a subject that I did in third year at university called high energy physics, which is essentially like the rules I learned there is pretty much what's in the game. Um, and that was one of my favorite subjects in physics. I then a couple of years later made a small flash game also called particulars, which you can actually look up. That is based on some of the very basic ideas there. Um, you can change what type of p particle you are using some very dodgy versions of the weak force. And you, uh, you basically have to try not to get annihilated. Um, it's a really simple flash game. I then left that for a year. And then a year later, I came back to it, did a bit more work in it, left it again for a year. And then like it slowly but surely built up over time until we at some point decided to go full time on it. And Particulars isn't the only game you're working on. Yeah, so separately to See Through Studios for the last year or so, I've been working on a board game called Time Fight. It's a game about gladiatorial combat, but with time travel. The idea, similar to Particulars, is how do we make time travel as... Let it be really complicated, but really let people understand and physically interact with that system in a way that makes sense to them. But yeah, that's still got a fair way to go, but it's kind of fun playing with it. <laughs> is there anything further you'd like to add? Particulars is available on Steam right now. People can buy it. That's awesome. Yeah. If people want to look for your work online, where should they look? So c3studios.com um, and particularsgame.com for particulars. Time Fight, we have uh, time-fight.com. 
There's pages for all of these things on Facebook. There are Twitters for everything. I, if you start looking them up, they'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul Steyer, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. That was Paul Steyer with Particulars, the computer game of subatomic particles. Find out more at particularsgame.com and seethroughstudios.com. Tim Parsons is the founding executive of the Delta V Space Accelerator. I spoke to him at the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup. You can hear a few voices from other attendees in the background. So the Delta V Space Accelerator, that's for accelerating space startup businesses? That's right. So Delta V, as engineers know, is an expression of acceleration. So there's a kind of cute joke in there. But the idea is to attach Australian talent to a new global market for space services and systems and do that using commercial methods. So an accelerator linking together talented teams, advisors, mentors, investors, and of course customers in an ecosystem where people can be educated about the opportunity and create new businesses, new products, open up new markets around the world. So there's been scepticism about how well startups can do in Australia, let alone a space industry startup. How do you reply to the critics that Australia doesn't have a Silicon Valley or launch facilities? Actually, for the space industry and for high-tech engineering in specifically, as opposed to the digital media, pretty much everybody has the same problem all over the world. So the Space Angels Network, for example, an international network of early stage investors, recognized that even in Palo Alto, it was difficult for startups in the space sector or even in high tech engineering or robotics to connect with early stage angel investors, get the mentoring and advice they needed. So that network was set up to do it on a global basis. And their view of Australia is it's a talent pool, just happens to be in Asia, in the Asian time zone, where most of the growth is expected in the new space sector. So actually they're very excited about the possibilities and very real about the challenges we face. So what's happening with Delta V right now? So right now we're a startup and we're in startup mode. We're gathering together like-minded teams from around the world, like the Space Angels Network, like the UK Satellite Applications Catapult, with our partners here in currently Sydney. So that's obviously the University of New South Wales, Australian Centre for Space Engineering Research, the Sydney University SpaceNet, Sabre Astronautics, a startup in this area, and also Launchbox, who have a fantastic STEM product, working with New South Wales Trade and Investment. Who are the customers of these space industries coming out of Australia? So. The customers for a specific new space sector that we're calling SmallSats or CubeSats are actually, right now, many university teams and also some commercial teams that previously couldn't have afforded a $50 million mission, but they can afford, say, a $250,000 or a $500,000 mission. Many of them are technology demonstrators, but increasingly we're seeing outright commercial um, providers such as Planet Labs who've just launched a constellation of small satellites to do Earth observation and Skybox Imaging who have a slightly larger satellite platform and they've just been bought by Google for 500 million proving that there are exits for the early stage folks to look forward to and that helps to drive the ecosystem. 
And so is it the commercial and engineering side done here or manufacturing or is it really just it's global and just using Australian talent? Both. We think that the methods of agile manufacturing, everything going digital, 3D printing, printing circuit boards, basically rapid prototyping with teams using lean, uh, using agile, test and learn on hardware as well as software can be done anywhere. We have international partnerships with people like India. We have long tradition of work with the UK, which actually has a target for their space industry to be worth 40 billion pounds by 2030. And of course, we've got very close links with the US, uh, certainly lots of defense links, lots of US aerospace companies in Australia, but also I think a recognition that we need to try a different business model to really get things happening. So. Customers in Asia are starting to experiment. Governments even, in some cases, developing countries are recognising that sometimes a space solution at that new price point, sub $1 million, might give them information that previously might have cost them tens or 50, 50, $100 million. And so they're getting interested too. So because there's what economics would call supply-side cost disruption, in other words, tenfold or even a hundredfold drop, in the cost of these services, we're seeing a whole new raft of customers emerge to say, actually, we could do this using a space system. So there's a whole lot of new products and services that are possible when things start to become that much cheaper. Correct. And there's also very long range ideas. For example, people have talked quite a lot about asteroid mining. Usually you think that you're putting on the tinfoil hat and you must be crazy. But in fact, the way that robotics and autonomous systems, machine learning are traveling, it will be pretty cheap for us to put very small robots to do surveying and prospecting missions in near-Earth asteroids. If you get a strike, if you discover that there's something of great value either for space operations or perhaps even for resource requirements on Earth, you can sell a bond for that future uh, value on the open market today. So there is a financial incentive increasingly for that mining community. What's the new sort of product or service that's really got you most excited at the moment? The things that excite me the most right now would be things that have quick application to the earth. For example, Internet of Things, a lot of the sensors, a lot of the actuators, a lot of the big data required to process all that data is actually happening in space first. So I'm looking forward to seeing things like intelligent avionics, diagnostic systems that would tell you, for example, on an A380 Airbus, not uh, you've just lost your thrust reverser or the hydraulic pressure is dropping but the engine just blew up, right, as a, as a classic example. Or if you take some of the other accidents and terrible things that we've seen recently where potentially a higher functioning machine learning system would have alerted someone to a major system problem rather than just giving subsystem errors. Those are things which could be in every aeroplane, in every ship, in every car, in every power station, every complex system around the world, giving people much higher level prediction of how a system's behaving. That stuff's happening in space right now. So that's almost the, the closest and biggest contribution that space can make immediately. Longer term, I think space is a system integration discipline. So it's, in, it's driving robotics, it's driving instrumentation, it's driving vision and it, People invented digital photography to take early spy satellites. Kodak, in fact, invented very early um, photography, uh, black and white digital photography, to shoot pictures of the moon during the Apollo program. Um, so space has kind of driven innovation wherever it's touched. In fact, Australia itself was discovered as a byproduct of an early space mission. 
the original voyage of Cook and Banks to Tahiti and to the South Pacific was actually to observe an eclipse of the moon, uh, an eclipse of the sun rather, and make observations of planets and planetary distances in the solar system. It was a space mission. And kind of along the way, they discovered Australia. So I think it's pretty apt that we really take a, a step forward now and take a commercial step forward, as well as building on top of all our excellent academically rigorous science and, and incredible engineers that we generate all the time from our universities and our schools. And we start creating real economic value out of that, both here on Earth and also for a future in space. And what inspired you to get into the space business in the first place? Well, I, obviously, as a child, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and so that drove me very hard. Uh, I wasn't a great student at school until I made a decision that I really wanted to get involved in space. And then suddenly my grades started to improve. So it drove my achievement in STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths subjects. Um, and then uh, at the time where I was finishing what ended up becoming a PhD in aerospace engineering, space actually wasn't that cool. Um, all the cool stuff was happening in the internet. Uh, all the entrepreneurial vision, the disruption, the new ideas. In space, at that stage, it was gigantic companies doing massive projects. I felt like I'd kind of disappear into that machine. Whereas in the internet world, I'd find myself in boardrooms as, an, as a 20-something pretty much straight away. So I went that path and I sort of got an education about how the world works how to do marketing, branding, positioning, how clients and client service businesses as well as products for end customers work, the whole soup to nuts of business and society, if you like. And working in public companies, also obviously politics, investor relations and so on. I've come to a certain stage in my life now where I think the unique opportunities of CubeSats, that new market, uh, the new generations coming through of young, hip, smart engineers and technologists who call themselves mechatronics people. They're both equally software and hardware folks, not one or the other. Uh, and just their ability to communicate with each other and collaborate, that excites me no end. So I want to create an Australian and really a regional industry for space and for high-tech engineering, which is maybe as cool as the internet. Well, Tim, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. That was Tim Parsons of the Delta V Space Accelerator. You can find out more at deltavspacehub.com. Christy McMonagall is a physicist and science communicator, working in science marketing in the science faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney. She performed the first Physics in the Pub Variety Night held by the Australian Institute of Physics, along with seven other entertaining physicists, including Paul Steyer. I spoke with her in a quiet corner of the pub after the show. You can hear a few pub noises in the background. And I began by asking her how she started her career in science communication. Well, when I was in first year of uni, I was studying physics. They came to our class one day and said they wanted people to volunteer for Open Day to run some experiments for the general public. So I volunteered and went along and I was hooked from that moment. I did experiments with people and people would come up to me and they'd ask questions and I got to explain to them how fairly basic physics but how these things worked it just it was great to see people just get that understanding and so I was hooked from that moment and I volunteered then in whenever I could doing this sort of uh, activities and uh, taking part in whatever I could whenever I could and then from that I started working at Sydney Observatory as a tour guide so my experience at the University of um, Sydney got me into working at Sydney Observatory I worked as a tour guide I've been there for seven years now 
and that's fantastic as a job because I get to talk about my passion. I'm really passionate about astronomy in particular and just teaching school children, adults, anyone of any age about it and it's just it's an amazing, really rewarding job. And then from there when I finished my honours in physics, I did astrophotonics, I started a job at Questacon in the Questacon Science Squad which travels all across New South Wales doing science shows. I worked there for about two and a half years and then unfortunately the program closed down which was very sad and I ended up back at Sydney Observatory full-time for about six months which was really good, gave me an experience doing a lot of uh, educational programs and development there and now I'm at UTS running the outreach program for the Faculty of Science. That's wonderful and if other people would like to get into science communication what would you recommend? The first thing I'd recommend would be to take every opportunity that comes along. If there's a chance to volunteer to do something, take it. That's how I got started and that's where I got my first skills. It's The best way to go is just jump at any opportunity. So why are there no green stars? Well, it's an interesting question because you look at the night sky and most stars are white. They look white at least. They're not actually white. Most of them are all different colours. You can know we have red stars, we have blue stars, we have yellow stars. Our sun is a yellowy white star. And the colour is determined by its temperature. So a hot star is blue and a cool star is red. And so you would think you'd have green stars in about the middle of the spectrum. But the problem is a star that should be green, so it peaks in the green, appears white to us because it's right in the middle of the spectrum. And when we see it as, the way our eyes interpret that, we see it as white light. So any star that is white is actually a green star. That's the only way we can see it. Yeah, so you never see a green star. They technically exist. There are stars that peak in the green, but you can't see them as green. Christy McMonagall, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Christy McMonagall from the Marketing Department of the Science Faculty of the University of Technology, Sydney, talking about the career of science communication and how the whiteness of green stars is an optical illusion caused by the way our colour vision has evolved. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. If you're doing something sciencey and cool, tell me the story and send me some photos. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion and subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information, particularly videos of the 3D printer and other things from this week's show. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com 
to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha,